<laughs> yeah, it's weird. My velvety voice. Sounds good, Chris. Welcome back, everybody, to Best Concordia Podcast. I'm your host, Johnny B, and we are coming to you live from the Ethnography Lab here on a chilly Friday night in Montreal. And we have a very special episode today, which we are calling Adjusting and Tinkering, featuring the musical stylings of Willem Burnaby, who wrote that atmospheric little ditty we're listening to right now. This fall, I had the pleasure of attending a workshop here in the Ethnography Lab called Design in the Making, Design and Ethnography. And the workshop was all about how ethnography might support or be integrated into the design process and was organized by two visiting scholars from the Technical University of Munich, master students Florian Tihi and Verena Eireiner, and myself and co-host Anne-Marie Turcotte sat down with them and got the lowdown about how the workshop came to be. We were traveling here in March of this year, uh, where we met with um, some members of the ethnography lab here in Concordia, and we just sat down for five minutes, and that's when we basically decided <laughs> that we should have some sort of collaboration, yeah, and that's when we thought of the workshop, because um, me spending some time in the um, industry gave me a good idea for current design practices. And of course, the ethnography lab has extensive knowledge uh, about ethnography. So uh, we were looking for a material component in ethnography and a um, storytelling or well, narration practices in design because we thought that they could mutually benefit from each other. Um, I experienced that firsthand because uh, when I did a um, managed a design process for an Internet of Things innovation back when I was working at the industry job, um, I also did an ethnography and I could tell that this reflexive component had a huge impact on how I thought about the design process and all the different actors and also uh, the materiality of it. So this was part of your job, you were working for this company, and you were managing a project. I, it was kind of strange. I arrived there, and um, my boss boss told me, well, we have this problem, um, power tools, really expensive power tools that get stolen a lot. And um, it's really hurting the uh, construction companies. So we need to find some kind of fix. Can you think of something? And um, it was really, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Fix the problem. that's what I did. I thought, well, um, I thought a lot about uh, GPS and uh, GSM and how that works. So uh, I was able to put a little uh, gadget together uh, to go into the field. It was only possible in uh, Great Britain, uh, interestingly, because, well, data protection law is kind of strict in Germany. So we did some... Um, some field testing in the UK, and we found out that it really works. But it opened up a huge array of privacy concerns, especially for construction workers, um, that I thought we really needed to be mindful of. And I could tell that my perspective, there was 
less a managerial one, more of a social science perspective. Um, also, I come from a, a long line of handymen, so I really felt for those handymen who were basically being tracked through their power tools and everyday and, and their everyday activities, and um, really throughout the day, from the day from the moment they started their trucks, where they transport their uh, which they transport their tools with. Um, through the um, task they would do with the tools because uh, the tracker would be able to um, detect current. So you could tell from the tracker data how the tool was used and if it was used properly. So <clears throat> this really concerned me. <laughs> uh, it was uh, now looking back, uh, studying science and technology studies was the only logical consequence from this experience. Uh -huh. I think tracking tools is not the problem, but how we handle it and how we design it in care and respect of those who use those objects is very important. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so it, you kind of did this, was it an informal ethnography or were they asking you like specifically to do an ethnography as part of the solution, coming up with a solution to this problem? I wrote a, um, a long report on the uh, ethical implications of um, that said uh, product. So, yes. But uh, not, not all managerial levels of that company were on board with me that that's really a problem because um, if you can collect data, why not just do it? I mean, we don't know right now how to monetize that, but better collected right now, maybe we can think of something. So that was one common notion that really shocked me. Yeah. Interesting. So, and then Florian, how about, can you tell us a little bit about the talk that you gave at the mm. workshop? Yeah, so uh, there's uh, two kinds of sources uh, for the talk. Uh, I've talked about prototyping and it was influenced by some work I did for um, the chair of sociology of science, which is also linked to uh, the institute uh, we're studying at. Um, yeah, I did a project on prototyping there that is in a wider context of projects on maker culture. Um, the other thing is I have a background as a, well, <laughs> I do lay pedagogy for for ministries and um, um, I started out as a as an altar boy uh, some years ago and <laughs> which sounds pretty strange but uh, well Bavaria is kind of uh, conservative in yes, that sense very Catholic yeah at least in the area we're, we're from. Yeah. In, in the celebration, most of all. So, uh, <laughs> well, um, and I, I, I got a group of, of uh, little children that were also going to be uh, altar boys and altar girls. And uh, I, I was somehow responsible then. So I got to... Uh, to a course where I learned the skills to be responsible for them. And uh, some years later, I was asked if I want to do that uh, myself, training other people to 
do group leading in that context and uh, well it's 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 a strange kind of experience because you go with about a hundred people uh, to some house far away from from uh, <laughs> <laughs> civilization well <laughs> there's not that much space in Germany <laughs> but uh, you feel kind of in to be in a laboratory you're you're there for a whole week you don't leave that house and um, you work on projects that are uh, there is there's no topic besides uh, do something together and have fun but the whole process of developing that collaborative design. Um, so there's no directive. There's just go to this house. Well, you probably shouldn't. Fun. <laughs> well, you probably shouldn't uh, fight with other people. And there's of course some some kind of uh, there's rules of how to behave, and there is uh, a basic plan of how this could be going on. Um, but like activities wise there's no yeah. specific activity that you're being yeah. directed towards you're just yeah well you you should learn how to play with children um, because that's necessary for for that work later and um, that's basically the main thing apart from that it's it's planning with each other but to do that, of course, you need some kind of organization, and therefore you meet in, in these groups of 10 people, 14 people, uh, to talk about <laughs> what you could do. And you start by something that is pretty similar to uh, design thinking processes. You start with experience mapping. You, you <laughs> try to... Uh, look at what you find interesting right now which is hard to explain but I would if I would do that with you right here in this room we could go around and look at uh, the map that is hanging over there that links all the people at Milieu and then maybe something comes up out of there because you see there is Martin who did the casino workshop and you link it with something else and maybe there's something else in the room that you could add to that. And in the end, you have a bunch of terms that grasp somehow the ideas you got. And then you associate that with something else and let other people uh, have another look, uh, enrich these terms. And maybe at some point, you kind of have an idea what to do in about three hours and that's deciding 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 with uh, like I like that then you have uh, rounds where you say I don't like that and it's hard to explain because it's so <laughs> example of something that, um, that came out, that of, came that? out of that yeah mm, so once I, I built the framework out of wood and we we did our own TV productions which were basically a very tiny theater um, Another time I was uh, in, an, in a Jamaican pop team, so maybe you have seen Cool Runnings. I guess this <laughs> is the inspiration for that. Another time I did a trial for, for someone who stole uh, 
some fairy tale creature. Um, and also, and my very first time I, I uh, translated Facebook and all the social media pages in pen and paper format. So there really were no guidelines. <laughs> it was yeah. really whatever you wanted to create, you could create. Okay, okay. And so, and, and what you were doing, what you're talking about is prototyping. Yeah. We were prototyping before that, but also these kinds of projects are, mm -hmm. in a way, a prototype for, for uh, sessions these, uh, these teenagers will have with uh, their groups. And, um, of course, we are constantly prototyping uh, for how we can arrange that in the best way, because even if there's no rules, you need some guidance. Yes. Yeah. Taking their experiences with corporate ethnography and prototyping as a starting point, Verena and Florian went on to describe the design and ethnography workshop they held here in the lab, and Florian finally, finally, gave us a prototype for a definition of ethnography. Um, well, in order to bring back uh, or to, to give um, ethnography a material component that it is often lacking, we thought it would be best, especially considering that we can't explain ethnography because there's not one definition and there's not one way to do it. We wanted you to um, engage in design exercises and then develop your own take on ethnography or your own way to do it. So um, I hope that was successful. <laughs> How was it for you? It was successful for me. I, I, you know, it's so funny because like, this is something we grapple with on the podcast all the time, and I've straight up asked people what ethnography is, and nobody really yeah. has an answer. It's a difficult question. And I have. You do? Oh my gosh. Oh. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to hear it. What is um, ethnography, Florian? So I will uh, now... Hegel says... No, I will say something really brief, uh, which is definitely wrong because it cannot... Uh, grasp everything that right. ethnography might be, but it might give us an idea, and I think that's kind of how prototypes work. Um, so how about uh, ethnography is the science of how to understand each other? Yes. I accept. And Mary? <laughs> we have a choice. It's the first answer we get. <laughs> no, well, Cheda gave us an answer. Yeah, that's true. Let's make Once this the prototype. Time. Yes. The, the thing with these kinds of prototypical accounts is that um, once you place it, once you position it in, in the room, be it materially or, or just semantically, it's hard to get beyond that. You have to work now with that. Um, speaking now <laughs> philosophy of science, maybe uh, it's not so much popper that you... Uh, refute everything there, but it's more like uh, Quine, this other major figure in the early philosophy of science, that you adjust and tinker with that what is already in place, much more pragmatic. Okay. So maybe you could describe for everybody what we did in the afternoon that mm -hmm. day. So um, 
Mary Pearson, who is a uh, awesome handyman from the um, from the Montreal-based uh, Helios Makerspace. He joined us for the afternoon and he instructed us in a design exercise where we took uh, small foam boards and created um, inlets for uh, toolboxes and. Uh, the little uh, tools that we needed to accommodate into these inlays. Um, they had very specific shapes, so it was quite difficult um, to accommodate all these little thingies. Yeah, they were all yeah. Nice sizes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And some, were, some of these approaches, some of these uh, prototypes turned out very pragmatic. We had a couple of engineers there. And you could definitely tell, very um, pragmatic approaches to do that, and very good ones at that. And we also had a very artistic approach, so um, they tried to um, make it as pretty, uh, as artsy as possible. So here we are, we're live in the Ethnography Lab and we're just in the middle of uh, the Ethnography and Design Workshop and we're making prototypes for these bits for machinery. And who am I here with? Um, Anne-Marie Malumba. I'm an undergrad student in design at Concordia University. And I am also here with Ross Hodas. I am a member of Helios Makerspace. Right, and the workshop today is being led by Murray from Helios Makerspace. And right now we're just making these prototypes to hold, what are they again? What are the bits? They're machinist jacks. They're small devices which are used to support work inside a milling machine if you're doing work with, uh, with cutters and steel and stuff to, to support the work against uh, the, the forces of cutting. All right, so basically we're like making these little contraptions to hold screws out of pieces of foam. And so what are you doing right now, Anne-Marie? Uh, basically right now we're trying to figure out um, a way to place the elements on our um, foam, I guess. Um, yeah, because they're kind of like, we've, we've come up with this triangle shape. And so Anne-Marie is just drawing right now. How come you're drawing? I'm drawing because I'm a very visual person. I need to see it before I uh, actually make a decision and choose which one is best. Right, yeah, and you're also a graphic designer, yeah, right? exactly, yeah. <laughs> so we're just trying to cut all of these things out and figure it out. Yes. Yeah. And we, we were all working in small teams, like teams of three, and working together to come up with a design for this for this thing. Um, and we also had a, sort of an, a secret ethnographic mission that we were doing. Can you talk a little bit about the about that aspect? Mm -hmm. Each of the participants got a secret uh, ethnographic mission <laughs> and uh, was tasked to do an ethnography uh, on his uh, reflections of this uh, particular aspect. So aspects were, what was it, Florian? Uh, we had uh, social dynamics, um, decision-making and uh, turning points, and materiality and infrastructure tools. Yeah. tools. Yes. Yeah. And then, yeah, and then we all came together after we had finished designing. So it was kind of, we were all sort of secretly observing 
and doing ethnographies while we were... You each add, like, a theme or something you had to observe mm -hmm. that nobody else knew about? Yes, uh, right. okay. Yes. We tried to give a focus, so uh, we wouldn't let that get too widespread what we would gather in the end. Yeah, and to keep it sort of, like... Not uh, sort of low key, like so that it wouldn't be a so distraction. Did you, did you get to share uh, those observations at the end? Yes. Yes. At the end, we did a little exercise where everybody shared their observations, and um, I also observed the participants while they were doing the design exercise. So it was very interesting to see that the more technical minded people they were more focused on designing and prototyping, while um, one of the uh, members of the ethnography lab, she was very much focused on her ethnography and let, just let the others do the design work. So I found that very interesting that everybody fell back to, onto what was most comfortable. Yes. yes. But there was also uh, aspects of why people behaved like that uh, apart from their professions, I think. Yes, there, yeah, there was were a couple surprises. I think... Um, Social science people are very much interested in actually using their hand to make something materially. That was something that attracted us too. So, yeah. <laughs> yes, um, our hands, they really just only see the keyboard. So doing something and then seeing the result immediately can be uh, really fascinating. Yes. What I liked about the discussion afterwards was, uh, so we started with the category uh, social dynamics, uh, then changed to uh, decisions, turning points, and ended with materiality. And it was sort of, it was difficult to, to focus on the narrations we had with the first two topics. It got more easy from social dynamics to decisions because there were clearer points that structured the narration and made it comparable, but eventually with uh, tools, materials, I found it pretty easy to follow the narrations and, uh, well, to empathize, to, to comprehend uh, also the things that have been said before in this group. Do you think that maybe that was because, so the, the, the social dynamics category was fairly broad and maybe not quite so, like it was, it, you know, tools is sort of an, you know, maybe an easier thing to discuss. I don't know that it, the, the topics kind of went from like broader to sort of more focused and more like, I don't know. Yeah. 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 yeah I definitely agree. I think uh, we have all these different notions about uh, well, let it be sociological categories, let it be something else. But um, with tools, we are referring to something uh, we all can look at. And uh, therefore, maybe uh, our interpretations or our narrations don't differ that widely. Do you think the ethnographic component, the missions, were, was that a successful part of the workshop for, for you both? Definitely. Yeah, you'd have to decide, decide, I guess, because <laughs> well, you were yeah, one of the participants. I, 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 mean, I, I also enjoyed the uh, the conversation, but uh, and because because I mean, you you planned the activity, so I'm wondering if it was, you know, what you were hoping, or if maybe there was it was a surprise, or. Well, in the end, it's always a surprise, of but um, 
we had a very motivated, very engaged uh, little group there. So I think that's what, in the end, made it a success. Hmm. Do you think that there was a connection made between that ethnographic practice and the design practice? Like, do you think we really were able to, like, bridge those two things together? I think oh, some... workshop, yes, right? It's a tall order. Yeah. And uh, um, the time slot was... Uh, really small too so that was kind of difficult but um, well I could tell that some people were much more focused on getting their hands dirty than on doing the actual ethnography so that was one yes (laughs) that was one difficulty yes I think there's uh, more than one aspect of bringing that together like we had we had comments about uh how it worked out, writing notes down during the design process and the difficulties there. I think uh, another aspect might be um, just getting more sensible for what is at stakes or what is going on during a design process, which is also part of an ethnography, not the written part, but... um, And... Third, I think uh, we've also discussed uh, the materiality of our uh, of our note taking, but I think we could have expanded uh, a little more on that with a little more time because the way we are uh, constructing our reports, our ethnographies, might be also kind of a design. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and this was very much just like scribble down a few notes. It wasn't a formal exercise. Yes. So, what if you were going to do it again? Were there would there be things that you would we change? We would definitely make it a two day event. Yeah. At, at the least. What do you think, Florian? Mm, I think I would uh, like to, especially expand on that last part on. Uh, how do we design our ethnographies? And maybe we could uh, show field notes to each other as a little exercise and uh, talk about what we like. Maybe also about, well, there's more and more ethnographic accounts in group work or, or reading each other's notes, I guess, and therefore it might be interesting to... <laughs> decipher what what uh, your partners are writing about and absolutely and maybe it doesn't have to be notes either it could have been yes. like one of the the highlights for me I was telling Anne Marie earlier was um, the talk that uh, Ida yeah gave. and um, she was talking about the project that she worked on with the post-it notes and putting mm-hmm. post-it notes and I mean I think you know th- some people took pictures while we were um doing the design of these objects and so that's like another ethnographic method that we didn't we didn't look at any pictures yes. and I had my recording device with me and yeah. I took so it might have been yeah it might be interesting to like explore the design of an ethnography outside of like a just field notes or a, a report yeah ethnography op- offers many weapons and 
would yes. be worthwhile to, uh, yes. <laughs> to explore <laughs> others, I guess. Yeah. Okay, so we're back and we finished our prototype. I'm back with Anne-Marie and Ross. So how did you guys have fun? Yeah, lots. Lots yeah. of fun. I actually had quite a bit of fun. Yes. Yeah, I had fun too. And it was really like, like we just had a little bit of a re like reflection circle and uh and I did say like you know I didn't know you guys and it was tentative but I do feel like over the course of like making this thing like it was fun to get to know you guys and like there was like that sort of like process of getting to know each other was really fun for me so exactly and it was only like an hour or something that we had to work together but I feel like we kind of got to understand each other's and laugh a little bit as well so yeah we did always, laugh yeah we can always relate yeah, yeah. I always think about it as kind of like a first date. There's like a great way to displace your vulnerability <laughs> yeah. into a project that kind of takes away from any awkwardness you might feel about meeting it's someone new. True. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Which is like, yeah, good, good dating tip for your that, first date. Like, do yeah, an activity. Build something like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Totally. So okay. So how what were some of the, like takeaways for you guys um, from today? Um, I, I think that. We, I, I think it's always important to remember how kind of accidents can kind of lead you in a great way. So we had a design that we were committed to. And then in that moment where we saw the rotation on the design from Murray, we were like, oh, yeah, that's actually a way better way to do it. I think we all kind of clicked in that one moment. Yeah. So it was a, a very organic but also just an unexpected way to facilitate a design process. Yeah, absolutely. How about for you? Um, I feel like uh, I learned that anyone can contribute. Like, it doesn't matter if you're the one building or, like, drawing or just talking, saying anything, because uh, you don't know if that thing will influence or inspire the other person. So there's always an element of contribution. It doesn't matter what exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Absolutely. Well, thanks, you guys. It was really great to meet you and to make our prototype. I think we had the best one, personally, but <laughs> go Team Triangle. I believe so. Yeah. <laughs> and if people want to check out our design, they can go to our Best Concordia Instagram page or Facebook page, and we're going to post pictures. So get on top of that. Yo. Yay. Okay, bye, guys. I also had a chance at the workshop to talk to Desiree Forster from the University of Potsdam in Berlin about the workshop and her own research. Now, if you've been following along with the podcast, you might remember last episode's interview with Alejandra when I awkwardly tried to describe Desiree's work around embodiment and how small environmental changes can impact our lives. And I think we should give Desiree the opportunity to explain it herself. It's not. <laughs> but here we are in the ethnography lab, and I'm at this uh, design and ethnography workshop here. And uh, now I am speaking with, would you mind introducing yourself, please? My name is Desiree Förster. And Desiree, where are you here from? I'm uh, from the uh, University of Potsdam in Germany, and I'm a PhD student, and I got the invitation to participate in this great workshop. So I'm very excited to be here. How did you get invited? It's, um, yeah, well, you know someone who knows someone, that's how it is, and uh, we went to a, a social studies of co uh, science conference in Boston recently, where my colleague uh, met Verena, who's one of the organizers of this workshop, and Verena invited uh, my colleague Hinet, and Hinet invited me, so I'm here. 
Amazing. And so we're on lunch now and we've had the morning. So we're, what were some of the like takeaways for you from this morning? Did you have like maybe like a top three highlights from the morning? Oh, yeah. So um, for me, uh, the highlights of the morning were that, first of all, I, I realized that I'm not the only one working very interdisciplinary and um, that bringing together like different kinds of knowledges and backgrounds can be very fruitful. And um, yeah, also the um, uh, yeah, approaching design as something that opens up new experiences to topics is something that is also for my own research very important. And I was very happy to, to uh, learn that this seems to be also a central point in the research of this group. Now, can you just remind me again what your work centers around? So my background is in philosophy and media studies, and um, I'm, my uh, dissertation is about um, processes of embodiment uh, that uh, enter the design of novel environments um, that make us hopefully a little bit more sensitive towards um, the different interrelations we have with our environment and maybe even have an impact on the way how we act in our environment, like become, for example, more aware of uh, the use of uh, our resources, etc. And I'm planning to conduct an experiment myself where I'm going to work together with designers and uh, neuroscientists um, where I want to yeah, use uh, design um, as a philosophical tool in order to test my assumptions. And what kinds of um, objects do you look at in terms of the design? Is there anything in particular that you're interested in? Well, interestingly, it's not really objects. Uh, it's the opposite because I'm interested in uh, like pre-perceptional experience. So I'm looking at, for example, um, uh, thermoception, so the way how we perceive temperature and uh, atmospheres um, and how also light and um, like haptic feedback can influence our experience of a space. So I'm actually yeah, looking not at objects, but at, yeah, uh, at the non-representable side. The actual, the embodied experiences exactly. that we have. And then, so like I know nothing about this, so if you don't mind helping me out. So like from that embodied experience to the design process, yes. what's, the, what's the link? Like what's this, is there it like, is that something that you can kind of yeah. conceptualize? I will try. I mean, I, I work with um, Alfred Nord Whitehead, uh, who is a process philosopher, and with him I'm trying to um, yeah, nail down the different um, like layers of perception or experience that lead to a uh, conscious experience or to a conscious perception of space. And I'm trying to yeah, uh, experiment uh, how can we bring these different modes, how can we amplify these different modes of experience in a way that they also yeah, have a different effect on how we relate. So for example, I'm, the experiment that I'm um, planning uh, will uh, involve a virtual environment uh, where you encounter a plant and you are invited to participate in the metabolic circle of the plant. And we will work with haptic feedback, with thermoception, and uh, yeah, different ways to um, make this um, yeah, interrelation with the metabolic circle of the plant experienceable. Yeah. So what is the metabolic circle of a plant? Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, I'm, I'm already so much into my... I also had to read about it and learn it, because as I said before, I'm like, uh, like a humanities scholar. Um, no, so, so uh, plants are amazing, because they... Um, they uh, take the, uh, the carbon dioxide and um, uh, process, transform it into uh, uh, um, CO2. So, um, which Photosynthesis. Exactly, they do photosynthesis, 
which um, yeah is uh, very important for us as humans. Um, and um, yeah, plants do have a, a huge impact uh, on our well-being, for example. But we are usually not aware of that. And um, yeah, I want to create a situation where both the plant and the person encountering the plant is put under heat stress. So the environment heats up, which has an effect on the plant and the photosynthesis um, capacity of the plant. And then also, um, yeah, following that. Does it increase the photosynthesis activity no, of the plant? No, it decreases, yeah. So plants cannot... Um, uh, I mean, there's probably plants that can uh, until a certain threshold, but uh, usually after a certain threshold, is, um, um, uh, yeah, we arrive at, then the plant like yeah, slow down the photosynthesis. So when a person encounters a plant, who's and and the person also has been exposed to heat, this and this is what your experiment is, right? So you're like, what will happen? In that, in those con under those conditions, to the person experiencing the, the sort of space with the plant, is that sort of a fair s assessment? Direction, yeah. I mean, I want to have different uh, modes of experience, so different um, uh, study conditions. In one study condition, the person will only see the plant uh, thriving and then dying, and not really knowing why. And then there's another study condition where the visual representation um, is. Um, yeah, uh, that, that we add also the thermoception, um, the, so the experience of the heat, um, uh, heating up of the room, and then yeah, also experimenting with uh, haptic feedback. And um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, get, it's getting a bit more complicated. Wow. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is very but, interesting. Yeah. So this morning there was a little bit of discussion around um, ethics mm. in terms of... Um, Design and introducing social science perspectives and eth ethnography in particular into the into the design process that there's that there's maybe potential for things to be mi misused for like corporate neoliberal interests yeah. or what have you. Is there any of that sort of stuff in the work that you're doing? Yeah, I think for me it's it's very important to always um, figure out how much uh, should should people in the use of technologies or for example in their inhabitation of space which I'm interested in how much should they be aware actually of um, uh, what the technology is doing like how much they do uh, participate in the process because for example if you think of um, designing um, uh, like uh, homes that uh, want to be more sustainable um, and um, and uh, are equipped with like very high technological networks. Um, the people are not really aware what the technology is doing. So the technology is, uh, is acting uh, for them, uh, which leads probably most likely to um, uh, less uh, or a more sustainable use of resources. But that doesn't change the um, like the um, awareness of the people and how you know. Um, but on the other hand, if you make the technology um, too, too um, uh, prominent, this also might then have uh, too big of an impact on the, li of the people's lives so that uh, they would not be really interested in having this kind of environment at their homes. So you have to somehow really yeah, balance. And I'm interested in like, yeah, how can we create like, learning environments that are that give us the possibility to have an impact on our experience and awareness of space without becoming too 
like too prominent and um, intrusive. and too intrusive. Yeah, okay. but of course this is. I mean, this is obviously uh, connected to many, many ethical questions because if you go to a supermarket, for example, you would realize, like, um, if you look around, uh, how, how much this also, this preperceptive experience is already in use in order to make us buy certain things or not and consume. So this is, these are, like, things that, or phenomena that we are already surrounded with. But the question is, like, how, how can we make us also aware of these? That was Willie Dings by Willem Burnaby, and Willem is our first returning musical guest on Best Concordia, and we featured Willem's music last season on episode three, The Right Constellation, and he is back in our orbit to talk about his new recording studio, Urban Jungle Studio in Montreal, supporting new artists, and his interest in electroacoustics. Once in a while, we care about the little things, the little well, I first started in composition, but yeah. I'm actually finding myself leaning more towards electroacoustics now. Right. We were talking about this right yeah. before we started recording. Yeah, for sure. So why the electroacoustics? Well, I've, I recently opened up uh, Urban Jungle Studio. Um, cool. uh, promote. Yeah. Yeah. For <laughs> um, sure. Shameless plug. Yeah. <laughs> Urban Jungle Studio. Check yeah, them out. Yeah. For sure. Um, and so I've been getting really into recording and just like sound editing. And, um, you know, for a long time, I've been really saving up for that equipment and... Mm -hmm. And I realized that I've just been, without me even really knowing, leaning towards electroacoustics and, and really playing with sound on, on that degree, on that level. So what, um, do we, what do we mean when we talk about, like, electroacoustics? Electroacoustics is, like, the manipulation of sound because... Um, we have all these various programs now where we can literally take sound waves and manipulate them 100%. We can do anything we want with them. And it's like a revolution in, in music especially because... Artists, for example, I'll just throw one out there that probably a lot of people know, like Skrillex, yeah. um, can take uh, um, a simple you know, sine wave and completely make their own unique sound. So not only are they making their own unique song, unique mm -hmm. song but the sounds involved are completely unique. They've, unique. they've created the sounds from scratch. Yeah, so and they just use their ears to to figure out exactly what they're looking for, and a lot of people find it very satisfying because it introduces a whole new side of of, of music, you know. So, like, what kind of things would you record and then alter to make a new sound? Like, would that it could oh, be I anything? Mean, right? It's it's crazy. Some of the some of the sound gurus out there, you know, can take the and turn it into a snare, a kick, and they make a whole drum set, a choir, you know, they can do... What? Yeah, you can take any anything and just completely manipulate it. It's wild. Cool. I mean, it turns into something that 
you know, uh, the original sound, it's completely different. It's no yeah. nothing like the same, but yeah. Cool. Yeah, very interesting. So um, last year, you, you were, the music that we used was sort of like more kind of like hip hop. There's a, lot, For like sure. a lot of like beats and stuff. For sure. Are you still, is your sound still, you have, the music that you're creating, is it yeah. still sort of in that world? I'm still generating my sound. I mean, yeah, I definitely have the hip hop influence from kind of older artists like the Ferricide or the Roots yeah. or um, who else, like Pete Rock. And they have like a kind of a neon soul going on, yeah. um, or a jazz influence of some sort. Yeah. So it's kind of a mix of hip hop, uh, that that really that really nice beat that we can kind of yeah. groove to, as well as the kind of um, very uh, ad advanced or very um, evolved theory and and uh, harmony of of these kind of genres like neon soul and, and, and jazz, right. et cetera. Yeah, because yeah. it is jazzy. Like, there's, like, For sure, piano, you're a definitely piano fan. Yeah. And yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, ultimately, I'm still finding what I really want to compose. I think, you know, we, we take from people we inspire, uh, are inspired by or genres we're inspired by, mm. and we just start clumping it together, and we try and find arrangements that we really like, you know, to... Yeah to do something that's unique and, and um, pertains to our own expression. Yeah, know, absolutely. Yeah. So, okay, tell me a little bit more about your uh, your studio. What's what's what, what sparked that? Why were you, you were just like... Um, I guess I've wanted to... I mean, it started off with composing. I've always wanted to be able to create my own music, but uh, unless you're doing a live performance, you know, mm -hmm. um, or you have a band, um, uh, you know, you need to find a way to be able to create kind of a full band or something similar type feel, and you need the skills like uh, production to be able yes. to do that. So to be able to use a DAW program on a computer and, and use, um, um, you know, these softwares to be able to create to create music and, yeah. and to understand that world as a musician. Right. I mean, I think there's so many people now, the technology is so re readily available. There's Absolutely. so many young artists who are, you know, they're, they're, um, they're recording their own stuff, they're putting their own stuff out there um, through their own means yeah. rather than going to, uh, to recording studios, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, so it's I guess, very, it, it seems very accessible. Like, you don't really, like, you could, on an iPhone, Oh, yeah, I mean, you can, yeah. a whole song or totally, whatever right totally i mean it's it's there it's mm -hmm. it's totally there and it's just the the depth you want to go to also yeah so your studio was sort of like you were wanting to create music and mm -hmm. so the studio was a way of producing your own stuff exactly exactly and yeah. had you been working with other artists where you were like i see that there's a need for this where i can like help them out and for produce sure stuff with them yeah once i started gaining more knowledge on it and um being able to produce a cleaner sound and, and, you know, gain the, the, some of the skills for, um, producing music. Um, it, uh, it showed me that there's so many young artists out there, so many, uh, people who want to be heard, who want to be up on the web, yeah. but, you know, um, are looking for something maybe more professional grade or a cleaner sound or something. Yeah. And it just takes those few skills to start leaning into that. Yeah. And so... Um, are you working with some people right now? Yeah, you know, I have several open projects right now. And I, I kind of balance between, um, you know, I guess Urban Jungle Studios really, uh, I want to offer 
affordable recording and producing for all. So yeah. whether that's you can't afford anything or you can you know afford to help out the studio, it's it's whatever you have to author yeah. offer. I'm willing to cool. kind of dive in on a project and yeah. and help get your sound out there. Right. right? Amazing. Yeah. yeah. And how can people find you? Uh, you can find me. I, well, I'm yet actually to create a Facebook page, but. Okay. Um, God, I, I actually am still working on that, on okay, my well, promotion. Okay, well, we will, yeah. you yeah. let us know, <laughs> yeah. and we will link on our Facebook page, Perfect. and we'll link to all of this stuff so that people can find you, but it's Perfect. called Urban Jungle, Jungle Studio. Studio. Yes. How'd you come up with the name for that? Uh, well, I'm really going for, like, uh, an urban jungle, so, like, my apartment is completely decked out with all sorts of jungly plants and whatnot, so when you're when you're in the studio, you really feel like you're you're in the jungle, right? Cool. Um, but it's also uh, really exciting because it's right downtown and uh, it's a great place to be just uh, for making connections and bringing people in. So yeah. Urban Jungle Studio. There cool. you go. Finally, we are going to chat with Ida Marie Toft, who is one of the presenters at the Design and Ethnography Workshop. Now, Ida is a PhD student in the Indie or Interdisciplinary Program here at Concordia, and I was very taken with the talk that she gave at the workshop, so we invited her to come in last week to talk to us here in the Ethnography Lab, and I was able to ask her more about her master's work in Denmark, where she and her colleague used post-it notes as an ethnographic tool in game design. I studied, um, I never studied game design. Oh, okay. Yeah, um, I studied at the IT University in Copenhagen, which has a very, very good game design program, but I was not in that one. I was in the design and design program. Um, so that's much more within like HCI, um, mm -hmm. like human computer interaction mm -hmm. and uh, user centered design, participatory design. Um, so that's more my background. Okay. And then I became more and more and then yeah, I became more interested in games and also I think the all the way through my masters I was always interested in games, but I was always interested in the kind of odd games, the games that the people in the games program didn't consider games or <laughs> considered bad games or <laughs> um, the, the misfit games. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um so but still, there was some people in the games program that was very interested in what... It wasn't just me. It was, like, me and a few friends. And by the end, it was me and my, my uh, master thesis partner or collaborator, um, Amani Nassim. So we worked very closely together. Yep. And we... Yeah, we made friends with the games, game design people, students and became more and more kind of involved in what they were doing. And there are also people in that group who does very experimental things. Mm -hmm. So, um, Well, maybe you could tell me a little bit about your master's thesis, because this was uh, how my introduction to you was through a presentation you gave on that work, and I was really taken with it. So right. what, was the, what was the master's thesis all about? Well, okay, so the master's thesis work was... 
um, it was more in the field of interaction design and HCI, um, user-centered design. So we had chosen um, to work with teenagers mm -hmm. and the home. So we started out by interviewing teenagers. Um, we interviewed, I think the first round we interviewed nine teenagers and then from those kind of pilot interviews, we narrowed down into uh, the teenagers' relationship to their families, mm -hmm. uh, especially yeah, communication. Um, because it's a time when a lot of things are changing very, very fast, and the family is very important space for mm -hmm. having kind of that support and that ground and all this, like all these new things you are presented to during those years. But at the same time, I think it's also a space where a lot of traditions, a lot of old rules, like you're still kind of the little kid who can't talk about like the things you're actually experiencing out right. there. And like, how do you introduce new topics like sex and, uh, f I don't know, um, menstruation and um, drugs and cigarettes and alcohol. Like, how do you introduce these new topics into a, into a, a, f a social group basically where there are very strict rules about how you talk and what you talk about mm -hmm. um, but it seemed very important for the teenagers we talked to so then we started we made two concepts basically um, around that where one was um, uh, more I think a speculative or it wasn't kind of phys like uh, technically implementable, right. um, but it was a, a clay frame, we called it, that has... A, so it's like a frame that has a clay kind of material in it, um, and it is wirelessly connected to a, a clay frame at another place. So we were talking about how when siblings move out, yeah. and then the sibling who is left home is actually, you know, losing their very best friend and their often closest relationship in life and mm -hmm. this is not actually talked about you know right. yeah. so we were talking about how do we keep this this relationship going without it being too demanding or having to call up because they don't do that for all kinds of reasons yeah or no i mean some do but not everyone <laughs> um so we we made this like very subtle thing like a, a clay kind of thing to work with while maybe while you're studying it can be on your desk and you can kind of poke into it and then it will create the same shapes on the other side. On the other side. Oh, cool. Um, I think now this would be technically uh, possible. Yeah. At the time, it was maybe a bit... Uh, uh, not, not quite not, there, yeah. Yeah, not quite there, yeah. <laughs> um, so that was the one thing we made. And the other thing was a game, like a location-based game, where people could kind of make questions about themselves or about each other. And, and they could place them around in the city. Mm -hmm. So they could kind of strategically place them where if the mom was on the way from home or you could place it where maybe where family members very rarely did. So you could, you know, can make all kinds of questions. Some are maybe more um, daring than others, or right. more risky than others. Yes. <laughs> more revealing. <laughs> so, then, <laughs> so then maybe you can put that, you know, somewhere where it's very unlikely that anyone comes out but it still right. makes a difference right mm -hmm. or you can so the mechanic was kind of that you um you make a question and then you make three possible answers of which only one is right 
mm. but it might be the two of them is right, you know? Mm-hmm. But then you're testing out what you think, like what your family think about you or what your family know about you, right. you know? So you're testing out like, what if the, I have put this as the right answer, what would the reaction be? And right. So we really made like a space where you could play with truth and and false information. So what would be an example of one of the riskier questions that um, people came up with? Uh, I mean, that could be one that was like, um, what did I do today? I colored my hair red, I got a tattoo, or I was late for class. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> that could be risky. I can see I'm disclosing that could be risky for a teenager. Yes. Okay, yeah. cool. And then that project is where, and this is the other thing that I was super fascinated by in the presentation you gave, um, your your method for dealing with all of the sort of like information that you had gathered from right, yeah. running these prototypes. Where you, you used Post-it notes. Yeah. Tell so Post-it notes that. is very overused in design. Is it? Okay. In design culture. Oh, really? <laughs> um, but, but it... But well, yeah, one of the things that we so this seminar that that you're talking about mm-hmm. was about ethno- ethnography and design, mm-hmm. and in within user centered design and HCI there is has been a use of ethnography uh, since the 80s when the computer started entering the home, yeah. basically. Um, but then also because it's a very engineering heavy field, so these ethnographic methods are always kind of um, being changed into much more like engineering, um, fitting engineering uh, practices, I guess. Mm-hmm. So then there's constantly this question about, you know, pushback on like, how do we actually use the richness and like the qualities that ethnographic uh, research can mm-hmm. give to design? And especially because we are not ethnographers. I mean, that's too much to be both a professional designer and a professional ethnographer. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so how do you kind of merge these two fields in a most productive way? Um, so, but then we discovered, I guess, or yeah. So, so we used a method. Um, what can I say? We, the way that we worked through our ethnographic data, instead of like transcribing everything, which is very o- often done, and I have done it as well. <laughs> as <a> yeah. <laughs> um, we kind of just wrote down on post-it notes um, and very big pens, like markers. Mm-hmm. We wrote down keywords yep. and we put them up. So each interview would have one, uh, a one kind of, sheet with with all the keywords from this interview and um and also our reflections and mm-hmm. but it wouldn't be word by word it would be keywords so that we would remember and we would like you know we would more kind of think about uh, it would be much more flexible for us to get new ideas and also to move around so over time we would maybe turn you know uh, rearranged all the post-it notes into themes mm-hmm. or into problems, into questions. So we would con- constantly kind of rework the data in this way. And that, we found, worked really well with design practice because design is also... Um, you talk about a designerly way of thinking. Mm-hmm. So design, as a, design is a, as a research 
I don't know if, I mean, that's me calling it a research method. I think so, because you, mm. every time you, you have an idea and then you make it, you know, concrete, or maybe you sketch it out and then you realize all the things that didn't work about it. Or right. like in our case, we would have an idea and then we would, that idea would bring out new um, aspects of the data that we hadn't kind of thought about before. Mm. And then we would use that new data to make new designs. So it's really a way that we, you know, the analysis process, instead of stopping before the design process starts, which is the normal thing to do, mm-hmm. you kind of have a design phase and then you start the, dis- no, you have an ethnography, ethnography phase, then you make a report with yes. the analysis <laughs> and you have the uh, 10 bullet points of implications for design. Right. And then, you know, you start the design we integrated it much more, mm-hmm. and that way the design practice became a kind of analysis tool as well. Right. Did it kind of, did that process, that integration process, um, was it more of like an, an exercise in, in method, or did it come to some sort of like conclusion or, or at, at the end, end, end result, I guess is what I'm trying to, to ask. So the end result was the two Concepts. Was the concepts, yes. And also the, 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 yeah, the method, the method. Is it something that you would use again as a, a way of working? Um, I think that, so I haven't worked with ethnographic data since this project. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, I haven't. The other thing that was amazing was that we were two. Mm-hmm. So it has that constant dynamic that, like, uh, Amani would see things that I didn't see. And I grew up in a Danish culture, so I have, I have been a Danish teenager myself, right. where Amani is not from Denmark. Ah. So she would see completely other things. And um, Where was she from? She's from the Maldives. Okay. Uh, and also our supervisor was from Brazil. Mm. So we just had, you know... A lot of different perspectives, and uh, so we would, you know, always see different things, and you move things around, and and I think when you are working on your own, things can get a bit more stuck, a bit yes. more frozen. <laughs> yes, <laughs> can relate. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, but I think, yeah, if I worked, um, we will see. Yeah, I would, I would use it again, like mm-hmm. definitely. Um, but I'm using the idea that design is a way of getting to know things, a way of researching or a way mm-hmm. of investigating. Yes. And a way of realizing and noticing. I think that's really kind of crucial, um, crucial points. Yeah, absolutely. Well, beautiful people, we hope you enjoyed this episode. We tinkered all night on this one to get it right for you. No prototypes, only finished products. Huge thanks to our guests this week, Florian Tihi, Verena Eyreiner, Anne-Marie Mulumba, Ross Hodes, Desiree Forster, and Ida Marie Toft. Music this week by Willem Burnaby from Urban Jungle Studio. This week's episode was produced by Chris Millett, Pauline Hobanks, and Juan Pablo Neri. Next week, the return of Anne-Marie Turcotte, who has been away on assignment. 
big love as always to our friends at the Ethnography Lab, the Milieu Institute, and the Speculative Life Research Cluster. We love you guys. I'm your host, Johnny B. And until next time, best Concordia. Concordia.